Hi folks, it's Rabbi Sharon Brous here. You are listening to Ikar's podcast where you can hear our sermons from Shabbat and holidays, our guest speakers, our teachers, anything we think worth listening to that we can capture, you can hear right here. Thank you so much for being with us. This week, as we near the end of the year 2021, and today, as we ended the book of Genesis, the book of Bereshit, I have been thinking about endings and beginnings. And so I engaged uh, in conversation, really extraordinary conversation this week with a small group of people in a kind of visioning exercise. And I'm going to ask you to do the same thing that I asked them to do. Don't read ahead. We'll get there. What I want to invite you to do is just literally close your eyes for a moment and imagine the world in the year 2041, 20 years from today, standing on the cusp of New Year's Eve in an uncertain future. What are the headlines that you would find on the front page of the New York Times or the Washington Post or the LA Times? What are the headlines you'd find on the front page of the Jewish press and the the forward or the JTA. And I would like at lunch, if some of you share with me what you see in this visioning exercise. What surprised me from this group was the optimists. There, there were some people who said that thanks to the, the moral voice of some faith communities, there was a massive move for real reparations in this country, creative new ways of being in faith community together. Amanda Gorman prepares for her second inauguration, those kind of things. <laughs> And I was surprised because to be honest with you, when I closed my eyes, I saw fire. I saw the fire of climate devastation. I saw the inevitable rise in, in temperature, which is bringing more and more destruction, the likes of which we saw just this past week with these horrible tornadoes stretching across the Midwest. I actually saw when I closed my eyes this week, a lot of what I saw when I opened the paper today to my great distress. I saw the polar ice caps melting, causing a billion climate refugees, which is what all predictions indicate we will be facing. And I imagined in that moment the violence and the hunger and the upheaval that will inevitably come from one billion climate refugees trying to find a way to stay alive and to stay safe. I saw the United States, once a beacon of democracy, now an autocratic regime, not only failing to respond seriously to these cataclysmic events in the natural world, but stubbornly continuing to pursue profit at all costs and to dole out protection and privilege to those who are already rich and powerful while the people suffer in anguish. I saw the embers of democracy fully extinguished, voting rights having been in our own time completely obliterated in this country. I saw all of these not as some chilling worst case scenario, but instead really as the most likely outcome, given what we are experiencing in this country and in the world today. And I, as you know, am in the business of giving people hope. <laughs> and yet when I look out and I'm honest, what I see is a dark and foreboding landscape. And so in desperation, I turned as I do to the Torah to try to find what I need in some of the ancient wisdom that comes from our ancestors. And here is what I saw. In this week's Parsha, Parshat Vayechi, we come to the end of Genesis and two of our ancestors die in this Parsha, Yaakov and Yosef, Jacob 
and his son, Joseph. There's a problem with our text, which you might see in source number one, Genesis chapter 48, verse one, for those who don't have the paper in front of you. Yosef has been reunited with his long estranged father, Yaakov. Remember for many, many years, Jacob thought that his son, Joseph was dead. And then he finally came down to Egypt and the two embrace and they weep and they're reunited. But then the text says sometime afterward, Joseph is told your father's ill. So the rabbis ask this question, that's very strange. Who tells him that his father's ill? Doesn't he know it himself? And in fact, our rabbis suggest that even after Jacob came all the way down to Egypt, he was set up by his son, Joseph, the second in command to Pharaoh. He's set up in a nice place in Goshen and the two don't see each other so much. Now that might surprise you given all the time away, all those years lost, you might think that Joseph would wanna spend every single waking hour with his beloved father before his death, but he doesn't. He kept his distance. And the rabbis explain why. In Psikta Rabati, in the ninth century Midrashic collection, the rabbis say that actually Joseph kept his distance for a reason. The reason he stayed away from his dear, dying, elderly, formerly estranged father was because he was afraid that if he spent too much time with Jacob, he would accidentally tell his father the truth of how he landed in Egypt in the first place. He would accidentally reveal to his father the cruelties that his brothers had shown upon him years ago. And so he avoided his father. He, he just stopped visiting him because he didn't want to break his own father's heart. Maybe it's better that way. He dies not knowing just how terrible things really were. Now, after Jacob dies and they go home and they bury him like Andrew described in this holy place in, in, in the cave of Machpelah, they all go back to Egypt. But the text tells us at the end of the parasha that the brothers are now afraid. They fear that something's wrong. When they see that their father Jacob is dead, they say, what if Joseph's still angry at us? What if he still bears a grudge for all the wrongs that we did to him? So Rashi says, what made them think that something was wrong? What made them think something was wrong? Joseph stopped inviting them for dinner at the palace. That's what he says. Once he was reunited with his brothers, he avoided his father, but he had the brothers over all the time. And then all of a sudden, he stops inviting them to the palace too. Now, here's what I wanna ask us to think about. What we know about Joseph's personality is that he's an avoider. He avoided sitting even with his beloved father because he didn't want to accidentally reveal a truth. So what is he avoiding sharing with his brothers that would make him stop inviting them over for drinks and dinner? What's the truth that he's trying to protect them from? And in order to answer that question, I need to ask us to take a step back. Jacob, Joseph's father, was holding on to a precious secret. He knows something that his children don't know. His grandfather, Abraham, our ancestor, was warned by God back in chapter 15 when that covenant was first established that something truly terrible would happen to Abraham's descendants. You can find the verse on the text on the sheet here. Chapter 15, verse 13. God said to Avram, know well that your offspring will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. And they won't only be strangers, they will be enslaved and they will be oppressed for hundreds of years. 
Abraham heard that right at the beginning of his own journey, and he told it to Isaac, and Isaac told it to Jacob, and Jacob was dying with this secret inside of him. And he had a sense of urgency that he needed to warn his children that this terrible thing was about to happen to them and to their descendants. So he calls all of his children to the bedside and he says, come close in this week's Parsha, come close. I need to tell you what's gonna befall you in the end of days. Gather, listen, there's something that you need to know. But then the blessings that Jacob tries to give, they're strange, they're oblique. It's not clear like it was when God messaged this to Abraham years before. There's an interference in the system. Jacob desperately wants the children to know and be careful and be prepared, but they couldn't hear. He fails to communicate. They fail to understand what's actually going on here. Our rabbis tell us that their ears and their eyes and their hearts were closed, that they just couldn't take it in. And Jacob is about to die. And so in greater and greater desperation, he tells his secret to one child. He tells his secret to Joseph. In chapter 48, verse 21, he calls Joseph to him and he says, I'm about to die, but God will be with you. And God will bring you back one day to the land of your fathers. And Rashbam, who's Rashi's grandson, says, this moment is the sacred transmission of that secret, of that deepest truth. Joseph, my son, Jacob is saying, you will now enter into a period of impenetrable darkness and it will last a very long time. And then Jacob dies. And Joseph doesn't know what to do with this secret. He knows that he needs to tell the brothers, but he's scared of the turmoil that this will create after all that they've been through. And it's all he can think about. One day, our children, our grandchildren are become enslaved for 400 years. It's an, it's an unthinkable story that he needs to tell. He knows if he sits with them, if he invites them for dinner, it's going to pour out of him and he's going to wreck them. So he avoids his brothers in order to protect them. But the brothers don't know that. They just know that their brother's avoiding them. And so they grow fearful and they make up this lie and they say, hey, Yosef, little brother, you know, before Abba died, he told us, make sure your brother's nice to you. Make sure he's nice to you. That's my debt. That's my dying wish. And Yosef knows that it's not true. But the text says, and you can, you can see this in chapter 50, verse 17, that something is unlocked in this conversation when the brothers in their fear come before him. And Yosef, Joseph, he bursts into tears. This is what he realizes. He realizes in that moment that he can't hold this secret alone, that he needs to actually tell his brothers the truth, that the only way that they can face their future the suffering and the hardship and the anguish that's before them is honestly as much as it hurts to say that. And once Yosef shares with them the same message that he heard from his father, that he heard from his father, that he heard from his, only once he does, he himself is awakened to the whole truth of what has been passed down to him. Not only the truth of the danger that's ahead, but also the truth about the possibility of redemption, which is embedded in the message itself. And so he has his own brother's promise. One day, we will get out of here. And when we do, you will take me with you and you will bury me alongside my ancestors back in the land of Canaan. Things are about to get very, very bad, he says to his brothers. We are on the verge of slavery, humiliation, 
suffering, we are about to lose all autonomy. But you need to know that that suffering will not last forever. That one day we will leave this place. That the darkness is not the end of this story. And in this way, Yosef turns the message of impending doom into a message of comfort and hope, which is exactly the way God designed it when God first gave it to Abraham back in chapter 15. Know that your offsprings will be strangers in a land not their own. They will be oppressed and enslaved for hundreds of years, but I will be with you and I will execute judgment on them. And one day they too will go free. That is the nature of the covenant that God makes with Abraham. The covenant of Abraham requires Abraham and his descendants to hold both the awareness of the inevitable dangers ahead and the promise that redemption is possible and will ultimately come. And to be in the covenant of Abraham as we Abraham's descendants are means that we too must find the wherewithal to hold those multiple conflicting truths. So I want to ask you to think with me about what the days ahead will look like for us. I understand Jacob's, I understand Joseph's instinct to avoid the truth. It's too terrible to think about what the future might look like. It's too much to hold. And it makes you kind of a bummer at the dinner party, which I am again and again in our own home. And yet this is the reality, folks. This is the reality. And with every passing day, we read more and more evidence of the impending doom that we are now facing and will face even more so in the days ahead. The collapse of democracy, the further erosion of our environment, the further disintegration of the rights of those who are most vulnerable in our midst. Many of you read Barton Gelman's recent piece in The Atlantic, The Next Coup Has Already Begun, January 6th Was Practice. I ask you to think about this as we now go off into a little bit of a break and come back together as a full community right as we reach this anniversary of January 6th last year. Barton Gelman tells us that 21 million Americans believe that violence is justified in overturning the election results from 2020. That the only common belief that was held among the insurrectionists, aside from the fact that the election was stolen, was that whites are in danger of being replaced by black and brown people. The common thread between those who stormed the Capitol was that they come from counties in which the white population is in decline. I just want you to think about this for a moment. Millions and millions of our fellow Americans who are willing to die for lies, for deeply consequential lies, because those lies will prevent them and us from dealing responsibly with the great urgencies that we are facing in the world today, including the climate disaster. So when I close my eyes, I see fire. And I don't think that that's an overreaction. We can all see what's happening. It's happening at a fevered pitch. There's an inexhaustible commitment in our time to gut reproductive freedom, to delegitimize the votes of millions of Americans by quashing debate, by refusing to vote on voter protections, while limiting access to the polls, while removing ballot drop boxes, while taking over boards of elections in localities across the country, by pretending that the rules of the Senate are more sacrosanct than the right to vote itself. And with the gaslighting, 
With the stirring up of moral confusion around voting comes the inevitable, inevitable outcomes. The election victors will be the very people who are hellbent on driving us straight into the fire. It's not nice to talk about. I'd rather avoid the truth because it's such a pleasant day today. But what is the truth? The truth is that our politics is cloaked in a facade of politeness and civility that has obscured the deepest truths while perpetuating injustice and protecting and privileging a minority of conservative, white, wealthy Americans over the will and the desires of the rest of the population. And I know it's taboo to talk about it out loud. Like Yosef, most people don't want to engage in this kind of difficult conversation. But Senator Warnock, our friend, broke one of those myths wide open this week, the myth of bipartisanship. Did you hear his words? This is what he said. Some of my colleagues are saying, well, what about bipartisanship? Isn't that important? And I say, of course it is. But here's the thing that we have to remember. Slavery was bipartisan. Jim Crow segregation was bipartisan. The refusal of women's suffrage was bipartisan. The denial of basic dignity for members of the LGBTQ community has long been bipartisan. When colleagues in this chamber, he said, talk to me about bipartisanship, which I believe in, I have to ask at whose expense? Who is being asked to foot the bill for this bipartisanship? And is liberty itself the cost? I submit, he said, that that is a price that is too high and a bridge too far. I wanna say to you today that it is scary to say the hard parts out loud. And yet only when we talk about it, and we talk about it honestly and openly, will we know that embedded in the disastrous and foreboding future is the very seed of the remedy that we need in order to avert this disaster. And that is the image of a very different kind of society in which we are all working together, not to replace each other, but to build a true multiracial democracy in which there's room for everyone. This is a society that is powered by the knowledge that every single human being is created in God's own image. And the commitment to manifest that vision on every corner of every street in the nation. The pessimists are right. And so are those who hold hope in this moment because the future is bleak and a better world is still possible. We just have to want it. We just have to fight for it and not give up until we achieve it. Shabbat Shalom. Hi, it's Mayim Bialik, actor, neuroscientist, Ikar member, and lover of all things Jewish. Do you like what you're listening to? Please consider donating to Ikar so that we can continue creating more podcasts and fulfilling our mission of harnessing untapped energy in the Jewish community to reanimate Jewish life, embody moral courage, nurture the spirit, and work to decipher what it means to be a human being in the world today. Why don't you visit our website at ikar-la.org and give today. <laughs>